We praise you, Father, that we have a strong and a perfect plea. We praise you that we have a great high priest whose name is love, who ever pleads for me. We praise you, Father, that when Satan tempts us to despair, when we're reminded of our guilt, we can look to Christ. We praise you that through him we're accepted in your presence. We are welcomed into your presence. And Father, we praise you that we can come and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Father, we stand today in one such time of need. We are living between the already and the not yet. We are not yet to glory. We're still living in this fallen and broken world. And Father, there are fears on every side. We pray, Father, that you would please strengthen, you would please help us as we walk through the brokenness and the desert of this world. Father, we pray today for those who are sick, for those who are battling some very difficult things in their lives. We lift up you this morning, Marla, as she's awaiting the results of her test. We pray that you would bring comfort and help. We pray you would give the doctors wisdom to know best how to treat her. Lord, we pray as well for John Stahl with the battle that's ongoing with COVID in his life. We pray, Father, that you would please give him the physical strength. You'd help his body be able to fight. And you'd, again, give the doctors wisdom, allow the treatments to be effective. And Lord, we continue to intercede for, for Shandel. And for the Turner family, Lord, you are a strength-giving, life-giving God. We pray that you would give your encouragement and your joy uh, to this precious family as they would continue to walk through uh, a very difficult and, and, and scary time. And Father, we lift up to you as well Paul DeLuna as he is uh, in a very serious place physically as well. Please have your hand of healing on him. Father, we pray just for that entire family, that your grace would be showered upon them. Father, I pray not only for the spiritual needs of our church, or the physical needs of our church, but also for the spiritual needs. Father, I pray that here at Cloverleaf Baptist, you would instill in our hearts uh, a spirit of genuine, reverent, and joyful worship. That when we gather, Father, we would not simply go through the, the motions, we would not simply just walk through, through a liturgy, but Father, we would worship you with all of our hearts. We would see you as a great and awesome God and that we would respond with joy and reverence before you. Father, I pray as well that you would instill in our church a culture of discipling. I pray, Father, that every one of our members would be about the task of helping someone else find and follow Jesus. Whether that's someone who is not yet in our church family, that's someone who does not yet know Christ, or that's someone who is a Christian, just helping them take the next step. Father, that we would just see that as our calling, that we would see ourselves as priests before you who've been given a great spiritual task of speaking your word to one another. Father, we pray for this members class that we're going to begin tonight. I pray that you would just send us the people that you want to have part of our church. We pray that you would grow Cloverleaf Baptist Church. I pray that that class would be helpful as we gather this evening at 430 to, to just be providing information as people are making that important decision about covenanting with us. Father, help us now as we open your word. We are a fearful people. I pray that you would answer our fears with the promises of your word. I pray that we would see the folly of fear. I pray we would just see the ways in our own lives that we are living in fear, and that we would live in faith. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I forget, we're going to dismiss children to Children's Church. And thankful for those who are teaching our kids today. All children through the third grade are welcome to go. For the rest of us, if you could take your Bibles and join me in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Continuing on our second week in uh, our series on the life of Abraham. Still known as Abram at this point. I've got a question for you as we begin today. Have you ever been disappointed by a spiritual leader? Ever been let down by a pastor? Devastated by a... Uh, a, a, a broader evangelical leader that you really looked up to, you thought that they were, they, 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 they were special, that they were unique, that God was using them, and then you find out that, man, they're not everything that everybody thought they were. Probably all of us at some point in our lives have been disappointed by, by a former pastor, by someone who we looked up to as a mentor in our lives, by someone who we, we read, we read their books, we, we benefited from their ministry, and then, and then they fall in some, some catastrophic kind of failure. Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that's going to happen to you. People you look up to, people you admire, you're going to realize that even the godliest have feet of clay, 
Even those who we put up on pedestals often are want to fall off of those pedestals. Those who we look to as being sort of a paragon of truth will sometimes say some really off-the-wall kinds of stuff, right? We'll, we'll be like, man, this guy, I listen to him on the radio every day, I read his sermons, and then you know, say something, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Every person God has ever used in history was someone just like you and me, someone who was a fallen sinner. Now, I am not suggesting today that we should excuse sin. There are some disqualifying sins that occur in the lives of spiritual leaders. But listen, every spiritual leader, every giant of the faith has their flaws. We're going to look today at the life of Abram. We're going to see one of the ways that he failed, where he had this sort of perennial problem of of wanting to fall back at times on his own machinations, on his own plans, his own ideas, uh, rather than the promises of God. You can fast forward through the biblical narrative. You find out Jacob... Man, Jacob wasn't exactly the, the, the prime candidate for, you know, looking to someone to be like, this guy here is a spiritual hero. The Bible says that uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And people are like, how could God hate Esau? My question reading that is, how could God love Jacob? Right? He's, he's flawed. He's, he's fallen. You read about David. And man, you look at David's life. Man, a man after God's own heart. And then there's this time where he, he fails massively. Sin with Bathsheba. Finds forgiveness. We look in in church history. Martin Luther, the great reformer, sometimes had a pretty intemperate uh, kind of language and temper, right? Would just really go after people. And you're kind of like, hey, he's being attacked by everyone. But some of the things he says and does, you're like, that's just not fitting for a spiritual leader. Or Jonathan Edwards was blind to the evils of slavery. Or John Wesley didn't really have the best marriage. Uh, Or A.W. Tozer. often aloof from his family. We look at all these people. God used them in spite of their flaws. Today we'll look at Abram as God leads him through a difficult time. What we're going to see in this text is the frailty of Abram as he flees in fear to Egypt. And then in fear, lies about the relationship with his wife. And as a result, gets rebuked by a pagan king. And in a sense, takes God's name sort of with him down uh, into the gutter. And yet, in spite of all that, God is still faithful to Abram. And this is, this is the overwhelming lesson I see from this text, is God's faithfulness in spite of our fear. Thankfully, God's covenant is not dependent on my conduct, right? God's promises are not dependent on my performance. They're dependent on him, on his grace, on his goodness. So what we're going to see is Abram responding in fear. Anybody here ever been want to respond in fear? Something comes up in the life of your family. Something comes up in the, in the life of our nation. The, the president gives up and gives a speech. Something happens on the world stage. And fear begins to creep up, crop up in our hearts. Fear's that unpleasant feeling, that unpleasant emotion that's caused by danger. Fear will lead us to sort of take quick and sudden action, sometimes action we haven't thought through all the way. Fear often makes very little sense. You look back and be like, man, that, that, that decision made no sense. What was I thinking while well, you were thinking in fear? It's the opposite of confidence and trust. When you're confident, you're not, not afraid by definition, right? Fear can lead us to do things that we never thought were possible, and that's precisely what happens here with Abram. Fear will give us gospel amnesia. It will come in and make us forget the promises God has given to us because we are so overwhelmed by the problems in front of us. So here's the call of our text today, is God is calling each one of us to live in faith, not in fear. Last week our message was called Living by Faith. This week we're talking about living by fear. It's quite a contrast. I want to talk through some facts about fear. Follow along as I read our text in in verse 10. And there was a famine, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10. There was a famine in the land. And Abram, his name's not yet been changed to uh, Abraham, went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said to to Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. You are beautiful in appearance, literally is the, the, the phrase. Therefore... It shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, This is his wife. They shall kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. It came to pass, when when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, literally his wife, that she was very fair, and the princes also of Pharaoh, the officers of Pharaoh, saw her, And commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman, his wife, his wife was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he, that is Pharaoh, entreated Abram well for her sake. 
And he had sheep and oxen and donkeys and men servants and maid servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why did you not tell me that she, is, she was thy wife? Why saidest thou, She's my sister, so that I might have taken her to me to wife? Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Kind of a tragic story. Abram heading down to Egypt, then getting kicked out of Egypt. Pharaoh looking at the man of God and being like, I've got more integrity than you, Abram. What, what happened here? Fear took over for just a brief moment. First fact about fear that I want to draw your attention to is this. Is that fear flees testing. Fear flees danger. Fear flees famines. Verse 10, we, we see that a famine shows up in the land. Okay, what, what, what's, what's going on here? Well, maybe they had a, 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 a drought that came in. Maybe the, the, the crop failed. But there's a famine going on. There's not enough food. Now, here's what's so striking is this comes right on the heels of this amazing event in Abram's life. God shows up to Abram out of the blue in Ur of the Chaldees. And is like, Abram, come over here. Go to this land. I'll show you. And Abram's like, I believe you, God, and I'll go. The previous narrative, we saw Abram acting in faith. We saw Abram taking God at his word to such an extent that he leaves the home that he knows. He leaves his family, family he leaves uh, his hometown, and he goes to a land that he's never been to, that, he's, that, that he doesn't even know where God's leading him to. Abram has walked through 800 miles of vast deserts with nothing to go on but the promise of God. He's walked from north to south through the land, starting, starting up in the top of the land, going all the way down into the Negev, symbolically claiming the land for Yahweh, building altars everywhere he goes. He's got this faith that is admirable, faith that is real, faith that's trusting God, even with Canaanites surrounding him. Don't think for a second that this story negates the reality of Abram's faith. Abram had very real faith, and it is the overwhelming lesson of his life. When we read about him in the New Testament, we, talk, we see over and over again the faith of Abram. And Abram, by faith, went out. By faith, he offers Isaac. By faith, he trusts God. But even the strongest will sometimes stumble, right? Sometimes even the most, most faithful will falter. And we see Abram stumbling and faltering here. So verse 10, a famine comes along. Where Abram had come from, he'd been living in Ur of the Chaldees, right there on the banks of the Euphrates River. He'd always known what it was to have a steady water supply nearby. So you might have a, have a, a bad crop, you might have a drought that comes along, but you've still got the Euphrates to deal with. But now he's living in, in a different climate. He's living in, in Palestine, where they are much more dependent on the seasonal rains, their, their winter rains that would come along. You have a dry winter, maybe the storm track goes somewhere else. Okay, I grew up in Arizona, and we would get these La Nina winters where we didn't get any rain, or you get an El Nino, and you get a bunch of rain. Similarly dependent in Palestine on the, way, on the weather. Here's Abram, he's a herdsman. His herds depend, their survival depends on having crops, on having grass to eat, on having green things growing. And here comes a famine. Here comes a time of danger. Famines happen very frequently, by the way, in the Old Testament. Standing behind every famine is the sovereign God who controls the weather. So don't think that this is a mistake, that God's just like, oh yeah, famine just kind of happened. No, this is part of the divine plan. Uh, later on, we see a famine that, that results in Jacob bringing all of his descendants into Egypt, and that's God's plan. Now, sometimes this will get it preached this way. Egypt is a type of the world, and every time you go into Egypt, it's always a sin. It was automatically a sin for Abram to go to Egypt. No, going to Egypt is not necessarily wrong. Right? It's not necessarily wrong for Abram to go to Egypt. It was entirely appropriate for Jacob to go to Egypt. It was right for Mary and Joseph to take Jesus into Egypt. There's not something that's just horribly bad about going to Egypt. Here's the problem. Abram does not consult God. He does not look to the promises of God. He just simply reacts and goes off into Egypt when the famine comes along. Now, notice back in the text, there was a famine, notice verse 10, in the land. Look at the end of the verse. For the famine was grievous in the land. That should take our minds back to verse 7. The Lord Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. God has just given Abram a promise regarding the land. Here's Abram in the land of promise, in the place of blessing, facing famine. Sometimes we think if I'm walking with God and God's will, where God wants me, everything will be great. If I do God's will, everything will be awesome. Bad things only happen when you're out of God's will. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. No, famines come to the land of promise. Famines come even when you are walking with God. Famines come even when you are right where God wants you to be. The land of promise is now scarred with famine. 
You see, even under God's blessings, believers experience difficulty. Psalm 34, verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Acts 14, 22 says that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom. The Christian life is not one of smooth sailing and constant rains of blessings. The Christian life often entails famine, often entails these times of testing. Famines, if you will, are divinely designed tests meant to strengthen our faith. That's what difficulties do. That's what difficulties are designed to do in the life of God's people. We find out in James chapter 1, it tells us that we should not be confused when various trials come into our lives, right? Knowing that trials are designed to work patience, and patience must have her complete work so that we may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. God has a purpose in difficulties. It is to grow our faith. Our faith will not grow without difficulties. It's like going to the gym, right? You're only going to get big muscles, like I wish I had, uh, if you actually get on there and, and, and up the weights a little bit, right? If you're just simply, simply over there with a the little five-pound dumbbells being like, I'm going to get ripped like Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's not going to happen, right? You've got to up the weight. You've got to test. You've got to put strain on your muscles. And faith is like a, a muscle that grows through testing. So what's going on here in verse 10 is God brings a test into Abram's life. Really, one of, the, one of the first tests he faces after being in the land, other than the Canaanites being there. And Abram, in this moment, does what some of my students used to do. I had, I had a couple of students, when the test would come around, they just wouldn't show up, right? They're like, well, I didn't study. I was up too late last night. I was, I was playing racquetball. I was doing all these other things. And so I'll just skip the test, and maybe I'll take it in the testing center, take a 10-point penalty, pay a little fee. And I'm just kind of like... You probably would have done better if you just showed up because chances are you're not going to study before that. Anyway, let me get off that soapbox. Uh, you walk out of the test. You're like, the test is hard. I don't really feel ready for it, so I'm just going to walk out. Abram, in a sense, kind of walks out. Now, God very well may have led him into Egypt. But Abram, rather than consulting God, there's no record of him seeking God's will. There's no record of him here looking back to the promises of God. He simply reacts. One of the things we find about Abram in his sort of unsanctified state is he's a a pretty clever chap, right? He's a pretty conniving individual. He comes up later to this thing with Hagar and and, and sort of he's, he's got this ability. And we see him falling back on that. So Abram responds to the test, to the difficulty, to the to the danger with flight, with running to Egypt. Now it makes sense why he would do this. Two big Centers of civilization in the ancient world, you've got the Fertile Crescent, Euphrates River, and then you've got the Egyptian civilization, the Nile River. Big civilizations crop up in in history along rivers, right? You need water to to have a good civilization. And so he's like, well, let me go nearby. I'm already down in the Negev, down there in southern Palestine. I'll just hop across the Sinai Peninsula, go to Egypt. They'll have water and food there. And so he's going off to Egypt. So, again, we look at the text. He went down into Egypt. Then there's this word to sojourn there. That means he's not planning on staying. Abraham still believes that God's going to give him the land of promise. This is not Abram completely abandoning the promises of God. This is him simply being like, I'm going to go down here to Egypt. It's not necessarily wrong. Listen, prudence does not mean you're failing to trust God. All right? We talked about this in Sunday school. Wearing a seatbelt when you drive is not a lack of faith. Right? Taking medicine when you're sick is not a lack of faith. But it can be when that is what I'm entirely relying on. There's a difference between prudence and panic. Prudence will take practical steps in the face of danger, trusting God for his protection. Panic forgets about God completely. Prudence will avail itself of God-given means. Panic will completely rely upon those available means. I think Abraham here is sort of resorting to the latter. So instead of seeking God's will, invoking God's promises, he falls back on a familiar way of thinking and heads down to Egypt. If some of us do the same thing, and it's fear that leads us to do this, fear that leads us to flee difficulty, to flee testing, to flee famines. I know people that when something difficult comes into their lives, I don't see them at church. And you're like, what's going on here? Like, oh, now would be a great time to come. It's like, well, we just, we're dealing with some really difficult things. I don't want to come to God's house. I'm like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? This is a place where you can be encouraged and find help. Other people, when they face difficulty, would try to run from it. I know people who have spent their entire lives running from one difficulty to the next difficulty. Uh, I, I, I take a job, and then things get difficult in the job, so I quit the job and take a different job. I get into a relationship, I start to run into challenges that happen in a relationship, so boom, out, bail out of the relationship. What is that? That is fear. That is not trusting God to carry you through the difficulties. Faith will put the reliance on Christ. Faith will flee to Christ. Fear will flee the test. 
Fear will forget God's promises. Faith will remember them. Fear will consult only human instincts. Faith will consult divine truth. People will run from the problems. They will run to bitterness. They'll run to anger rather than running to Christ, rather than confronting the problem. So Abram, I believe, makes a fear-based compromise here at this point. Not sinning, not rebelling against God directly, but it's one step sort of in the wrong direction. But it's not going to stop there. You see, fear-based compromise leads him to Egypt, and it will lead him next to lie about his wife, mar his reputation before a watching world, which brings us to the second fact about fear. Fear will fuel tragedy. Fear will fuel disaster. Fear will fuel failure. So we read in verse 11, it came to pass when they were come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Hey, good thing to tell your wife. You're really pretty. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, they will say, This is his wife, and they'll kill me. But they will save thee alive. They will preserve you. So there's a, there's a tragedy that's anticipated here. And by the way, Abraham is not wrong. We read in the coming verses, this is exactly what happens. The Egyptians are like, mm, she's a real looker. Let's try to get her for Pharaoh. So he's not completely off base to have this concern. Abram's problems here are just getting started. The famine was one thing, but he's got a major problem here. He's got a true cross to bear, something that is just awful to deal with. His wife is really beautiful. Right? That's, that's rough. I, I, I know how, what he's dealing with. My wife is beautiful. It's amazing, right? Okay, but here's Abram. Um, even at 65, Sarai is stunningly beautiful. She can catch the eye of the world's most powerful man. You're like, well, how does that work? 65. Here's what we find out later on in the text. Sarai's going to live to 127 years old. Abram's going to live to 175. You'll see back here, looking at the genealogies, lifespans were much longer back at this point in history. So you sort of just extrapolate that, and you figure that the aging process is stretched out much longer. She's, at this point in her life, the equivalent of being around the age of 40, right? Kind of in, in the aging process. So she has retained much of her beauty still at this point. God has blessed Abram with a beautiful wife. But Abram is afraid, of course, the Egyptians will kill him for Sarai. Adultery was a really, really big deal in the ancient world, right? It was regarded one thing you did not do was mess with another guy's wife. Even the Egyptians knew that that was a sin. So if they knew that Abram was married to Sarah to Sarai, they would sooner kill Abram to take her than to just take her. And so Abram has this very real fear that he'll be killed. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. He doesn't think this way when he's in Canaan, even though he's surrounded by Canaanites in Canaan. The Canaanites were every bit as wicked, if not even more so than the Egyptians. But I think what's going on here, when we begin to have a a fearful mindset, fear begins to make us cynical, right? People that before we would not mistrust, we suddenly start to mistrust, uh, when we are fearful. I've seen this played out before. Someone has a bad experience, uh, say at one church, you come to the next church and you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You have a bad, re- bad experience in one relationship, you come into the next and you're expecting that, that shoe to, it makes you cynical and fearful. I, I think if we look around our culture today, our world today is one that is very much governed by cynicism. We have a hermeneutic of fear and mistrust. So people on the left have the, think the absolute worst of people on the right, and people on the right think the absolute worst of people on the left. And listen, there's bad actors on the extremes on both sides. But chances are most people are not the, the evil caricature that either side thinks. What, what happens? Fear makes you begin to think the worst of other people. You, you think about that. It's psychologically, in our experience, that, that is often what happens. Fear makes us be much more. So Abram is thinking things about the Egyptians that are patently not true. We find out that Pharaoh is actually a pretty stand-up guy in this story. When he realizes this is someone else's wife, he's just like, here's your wife, get out of here. Like Abram has more, or, or Pharaoh has more honor in the story than Abram. Uh, sometimes people who don't know Jesus, because of common grace, because of natural law, because of God's revelation and conscience, can still do things that on a human level are good and right. right? I've, I know some people who don't know Jesus who have been kinder, more honest than some people who claim to know Jesus. Uh, that, that's the case here with, with Pharaoh. So Abram's got the, this fear. He's cynical of the Egyptians. He's afraid of what they're going to do. So he hatches this clever scheme in verse 13. Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister. Now, this doesn't just happen one time in Abraham's life. We come along to Genesis chapter 20, and we find out that he says the exact same thing to a later king named Abimelech. Just pop over to Genesis chapter 20 with me. This is years later uh, in Abraham's life. Verse 2 of Genesis 20, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. And in verse 6, we find out that God restrains Abimelech from touching Sarah, from taking her. And then Abram explains, look at verse 11, Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So this next story, this, by the way, this happens three times in Genesis. Abraham does it twice. Isaac does it once. You put these three stories together, you see fear leading to these sinful uh, deceptions. Abraham is, back here to Genesis 12, is not telling a bald-faced lie. There's a little kernel of truth. Sarai is technically his half-sister, perhaps maybe adopted some think in this situation. Remember, we're before the Mosaic Law, the, the strict guidelines about who you can marry and the closest of relations, not yet established. So there's a little kernel of truth that, yeah, technically there is a sisterly kind of relationship here, but that's not her primary identity, right? She's primarily his wife. One, something interesting to do is just go through and see how often the text over and over again calls Sarah Abram's wife, Abram's wife, Abram's wife. Like, it's very, very clear. That's objectively what's true. He's going to tell a sort of half-lie, a so-called white lie, to try to protect his own life. But it is an intentional deception. At that point, it is a sin. Now, I think what Abram's plan is, is to say, yeah, she's my wife. If anybody tries to marry her, he'll do the Middle Eastern thing and enter into long, drawn-out uh, negotiations for a dowry. You would exchange a dowry. Well, you need to do this and just go back and forth until the famine's over and then whoosh, out, of, out of Egypt before anything can happen. I think his plan is to delay this indefinitely so he can get out without anything happening to his wife. However, the whole thing just blows up, right? Abram has this plan to try to protect himself. Would, he did not ever realize it would endanger the woman he loved. Now, think about this. Abram legitimately wants to protect and preserve his own life. It is not a sin to want to preserve your own life, right? God's given life. We ought to protect and care for the lives he's given to us. In fact, the promises God had given to Abram required Abram to be alive, right? You can't be the father of many nations if you're dead. That's just not how that works. So I think Abram could really rationalize this on a number of levels. Well, she's technically my sister. God's made these promises, so I probably ought to help God out by making sure that I stay alive. This seems like a great way. Um, most of the times we give in to fear, it's very, very easy to rationalize the bad decisions that we make. Right? We're really, really good at rationalizing our bad decisions. Uh, it's just kind of built in all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Well, the woman thou gavest me. Right? We're good at blaming other people, rationalizing what we do. That's precisely what Abram is doing here in this case. I think it's because of this, or situations like this, that Solomon writes, the fear of man brings a snare, it brings a trap, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man brings a snare. When you are afraid of what other people will do, you will live in slavery to the opinions of other people. You ever spend your life just being overcome with anxiety about what other people think of you? I wonder what they think, I wonder what they think, and I wonder what they think, and I'm afraid of just pleasing this person and losing this relationship here, so I make compromises that I really shouldn't be making. It's the fear of man. In a sense, let me put it in a, in a different term, it is idolatry, right? It is saying that I, I, I view what this person can give me or do for me is the most important thing, and I'm willing to sacrifice even my integrity on the altar of this fear. Uh, that's why the Bible repeatedly talks about the fear of the Lord as shorthand for the worship and the trust of Jehovah. Because what you fear is ultimately what you trust, right? If I, if I fear losing this relationship, it's because I put all my eggs in the basket of that relationship. If I fear this eventuality, is because I'm finding my confidence in that. What we fear and what we trust go hand in hand. Right, so you fear the Egyptians, ultimately there is a, an awe of the Egyptians. You either have an awe of God or you have an awe of the problem. Right? You either fear God or you'll fear the problem. The question is, which will you fear? Bigger? Which one is bigger in your mind? There's a fantastic book, and I get the title wrong all the time, but it's When People Are Big and God Is Small, or When God Is Big and People Are Small. Great book, highly recommended to you by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Unpacks that is extremely helpful. In this situation for Abram, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are really big, and God is really small. He's no longer trusting God to protect him and Sarai. So notice what happens beginning in verse 14. His, his, his fears are fulfilled. This is kind of what Job said, the thing that I feared the most has come upon me. Verse 14, it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman. And, and by the way, the Hebrew word, the, the woman, Aisha, could also be translated his wife. 
So I, I, I'm inclined to go that way. They beheld his wife. That she was very fair. She's very beautiful. Okay, so we've got some very, very things going on here. We've got a very severe famine. We have a very beautiful woman. And then the end of the story, Abram will leave with very great wealth. Uh, that term gets repeated, kind of pulling this all together. So the prince is also a pharaoh. These are his officers, sort of his mid-level administrators throughout the land. They see her, and they commended her. They praised her before Pharaoh. They're like, Pharaoh, we saw a woman today like, you've got to meet her. She would be a great addition to your harem full of beautiful women. That's what kings did. Uh, one thing that, that Abram did not count on in Egypt was Pharaoh. He figured, hey, average Joe Egyptian, I can negotiate with him. Guess what? You don't get to negotiate with Pharaoh. Pharaoh just rolls and is like, I'm going to take her. She's your sister. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and take her. I'm going to marry her. And so she is taken, verse 15. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. This was not Abram's plan. His plan has completely blown up. His scheme has gone a direction that he never saw it going. His ruse might have protected him from other ordinary individuals, but not from Pharaoh. So before he knew it, Abram's wife Sarai has been taken into Pharaoh's house. And more than likely, there would have been a waiting period before she was formally married to him. Though commentators are split, some think that Pharaoh actually did take her as a wife and have relations with her. I'm inclined to say God protected her from that, but it came perilously close to disaster. She's taken into Pharaoh's house. So this plan has backfired spectacularly. You ever had that happen to you? where you've got this whole scheme, and I'm going to move this and, and all these things. There's a really funny Andy Griffith where Barney decides to become a realtor. Anybody seen that one? And he thinks, okay, this person wants this person's house, and they want that person's house. And so he's trying to get everyone to sort of move house to house and make everybody happy. And then they all realize in the end they want to stay where they're at. His whole plan kind of blows up because there's too many moving parts, right? So that's kind of what's going on here with, with, with Abram. His plan has backfired. You see, we often think that the decisions we make don't influence other people, right? I think, ah, I can, I, can, I can tell this lie. I can, I can go down this path. It's just going to influence me. It's not that big of a deal. If you're married, the decisions you make influence your husband or your wife. If you're a parent, the decisions you make influence your children. If you're a church member, the decisions you make affect the entire church family. You're like, ah, I've just got the secret sin over here on the side. Hey, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It is. It does affect other people. Right? What we do does affect other people. It's not just me as an island over here and I do what I want to do and it only affects other people. We find out that Abram's sin of lying about Sarai had major ramifications for Sarai. Right? Here she is now all alone in this big harem with people who speak a different language and live in a different culture. And there's not really a way out of this. This is, this is a royal mess. Pardon the pun. Well, Now notice what happens in verse 16. And Pharaoh entreated Abram well for her sake. Now, there's some irony here. There's some rich irony. Back in verse 13, he says, Say that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. And here we have in verse 16, And he entreated Abram well for her sake. Right? It's exactly what Abram wanted is, I would be treated well because of Sarai, but he didn't anticipate it happening this way. All of a sudden, he's being given all of this stuff. He's getting sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, female donkeys, camels, all of this stuff that's of immense value. This is the currency of the ancient world. This is like being given, hey, we're going to give you a 20% share in Apple. We're going to give you all of these stocks. We're going to give you a Bitcoin, and it's going to grow, and you're going to make lots of money. Abram is becoming an incredibly, fabulously wealthy man at this point. He's getting all of the treasures of Egypt lavished upon him. More than likely, this is probably a dowry. What was, what was common practice in that day is if a father, or in this case a brother who was the guardian of a woman, if, if they were to marry her off, the, the father of the one who is marrying her would give a dowry, would give a, a, a wedding, a bride price to the, the individual. Uh, and that's precisely what's going on, would give to the, to, to, to the girl's dad or, or uh, to the, the one who's protecting her. So Abram's being blessed because of Sarai. He's getting all of the stuff. But what hollow joy that would be, right? If you're being given, you're given a Ferrari, and you're given all of this stuff, and, and cruises to the Bahamas, but it's at the cost of losing your own spouse who you love deeply. Abram, in trying to protect his own life, has lost his own wife. He, he didn't plan on that. The one who should have been protecting his wife has almost sacrificed her. He, it, it's just everything is backwards here, right? The husband is meant to protect and care for the wife. And Abram, in trying to protect himself, 
has brought great danger on her. Verse 16 mentions the, the female donkeys and the camels. Uh, the reason those are mentioned, um, the, the, the male donkeys were not great for riding because they would just always be trying to pull off and, 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 and all of these things. The female donkeys were sort of the domain of the ultra-rich. They were the BMWs of the ancient world. Some commentators are like, ah, oh, camels, that's an anachronism. Camels aren't used until two centuries later. Well, here they are being used early in a text. Here's my problem with those things like that. They say, this can't happen to the Bible because if we just ignore what the Bible says, it can't mean that, right? We're going to sort of rule out all of the evidence that's in the text of the Bible itself and say that it can't be possible. Uh, camels were the, the domain of the ultra-rich. That's why they don't show up very often in ancient documents. And so here's Abram being given camels. Only people like Pharaoh would have had access to them. He's becoming very, very wealthy. Here's what's amazing. Abram is making bad decisions here, right? We can all agree, like, selling your wife out to protect your own life is not a good thing to do. And yet, God is seeing to it that Abram is being blessed. This is incredible, right? Back in Genesis 12 and verse 3, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. God had promised to Abram, I'm going to bless you, Abram, no matter what. And here he is, even in the midst of making poor choices, and God still sees to it that he gets blessed. Why? God's covenant with Abram is not dependent on Abram's conduct. God's promised blessing is not dependent on Abram's performance. This is grace. And I think this will be pretty convicting, too, to be like, man, I'm getting all this stuff, and it's, I've really blown it here. So Abram's ruse indeed saved his life, but it put his wife into jeopardy. Can you imagine Abram's tortured confidence as he went back to his tent every night and there's all of the bleeding sheep and the camels and the donkeys and all of this wealth around him? But he lays down in an empty tent that night. That'd be pretty heart-wrenching for him. This is where fear got him. Fear brought him to the brink of catastrophe, brought him to a place of failure. Fear feeds failure. The decisions that you and I make that are driven by fear are almost never good decisions, right? So think about the decisions you're maybe tempted to make right now. You're, you're, in, you're thinking about a relationship, you're thinking about a job, you're thinking about your church and all of these things. The decisions that are made out of fear rarely are the best decisions, right? We see Abram illustrating that for us. Out of fear, Peter denied Christ. Out of fear, Abram sold out his wife. Out of fear, we do many, many foolish things. What I mentioned earlier, what we fear most is what we truly worship. So what do you worship today? Right? Do you worship God, the God who's the mighty fortress, or the things of this world that, that scare you and, and, and frighten you? And that's not to deny that the fears are real. The hymn, the, the hymn that we sang says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Okay, Martin Luther knew the dangers of the world in which he lived. He lived every day risking being burned at the stake because of his stand for the gospel. He knew that fear, yet he says, I fear God more than I fear the Pope, right? I fear God more than I, I, I fear the emperor, than I fear the civil rulers, than I fear death itself, and it made him bold. But I want to finish with this. Is we could end the story here, and it would be a real downer, right? It would be like, look at Abraham, what a loser. Why are we preaching about this guy who, who sells his wife out? I love how the story ends, because we find this final fact about fear, is fear can find grace. Actually, better said, grace finds the fearful. Right, so Abram, even though he has this fear, his fear finds divine favor. Favor is seen, of course, in verse 16, getting all that stuff from Pharaoh. But notice verse 17. But the Lord, but Yahweh, plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why didst thou say she is my sister, so that I might have taken her to, to meet a wife? Now, therefore, behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. Understandably, you'd expect Pharaoh to be pretty hot under the collar at this point. In fact, if you're Pharaoh, you might be like, this dude had the audacity to lie to the Pharaoh of Egypt off with his head. No doubt people lost their heads for lesser things. You read about the life of Joseph and the, the butler and the baker, and one of those guys had his head removed for probably a lesser infraction than this. The Pharaoh didn't like the dinner. Here's Abram, though, his life is spared. Why? Because of God's grace. Pure and simple. Not because of Abram being a good guy. Abram says nothing in this conversation with Pharaoh because there is no defense for his actions. He's done the indefensible. He has lied. He has deceived. And Pharaoh knows it. 
and yet God intervenes. We see that fear finds grace, this intervening grace. Now look at verse 17. We see God enter. For the first time in the story, we see God mentioned. God's not been mentioned when Abram went down to Egypt. God was not sought when Abram lied about his wife. But now God comes crashing in. And I kind of love how God shows up in the, in the life of Abraham. Earlier when Abram was living in the Ur of the Chaldees, God just shows up out of nowhere, calls him just by his grace. Here God shows up and intervenes and rescues him by his grace. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh with plagues. I love how that's rendered. He plagued him with plagues. That's the Hebrew way of saying the plagues were really bad. So in Hebrew, if you want to make something intense, you take the verb and then you make the, the object of it, the, the cognate of the verb. So to plague someone with plagues is a whole lot worse than to just plague them, right? The word plague means to strike or smite. So he smites them with smitings. He plagues them with plagues. He gets them sick with sicknesses. It's, it's a really bad, intense kind of thing. Uh, so God plagues them with not just any plagues, with great plagues, probably some kind of sickness or disease that just runs through Pharaoh's house. Now, how did Pharaoh figure out Sarai was Abram's wife? Well, probably what happened, here's my conjecture. This is my opinion here. This is not stated in the text. Everybody in Pharaoh's house got sick except Sarai. That seems to, to match what we see in God's dealings with Israel in Egypt later on. All the plagues got the Egyptians, but there is light in Goshen. There's, light, there, there's protection in God's people. So you think about it, you've got a harem full of, let's say, 100 people. 99 of them get sick except for one. And you're like, everything was great until she showed up. Like, hmm, what's going on here? People begin to ask around. Questions are asked. Conversations are had. They're like, I think she's actually this guy's wife, and this is judgment. Now, the Egyptians are superstitious. They're not looking at this and saying, look at what Yahweh did. We bow before Yahweh and worship him as the true God. They're just thinking, this guy has a, a, a powerful deity behind him. We don't want to mess with him, and so we're going to give him back his wife. Ironically, Pharaoh fears God at this point in a, in a time when Abram is not. So Pharaoh has this fear of what God could, if, if God plagues him for simply taking another man's wife, how much greater would the damage be if he took the man's life? Right, so I think Pharaoh is running scared at this point, and that is why he spares Abram's life. Not because Abram talked his way out of it, not because Abram had a really stunning defense, not because he looked at Abram and was like, I really like you, buddy, but because he feared Abram's God. This is God's intervening and protecting grace. This is incredible. God, by the way, is living out and, and carrying out the promise, I will curse him that curses thee. Remember I noted last week, I will curse the one who just disrespects you. Pharaoh, without even realizing it, is doing harm to Abram. Pharaoh, in a sense, is completely ignorant of what he's doing, and yet he's facing consequences. Why? Because God says, I will protect my people. I will protect Abram no matter what. Could we not agree that Abram was really the one in the story who deserved the plagues? Right? Abram was just as deserving of this judgment as Pharaoh was. But God in his grace is like, I'm not going to give Abram what he deserves. That's, that's how grace works. Grace is always selective. Grace is not just, if it's given, if everyone gets, a, gets the favor, it's no longer grace. If every student is just given an, an A plus on the test, it's no longer something special at that point, right? God's grace is special. It is specific. It is given to Abram, to the one who has faith and confidence in God. So here's God protecting Abram by his grace. You see, we're justified by faith. He took that first step out of Ur by faith. And here God is protecting Abram by his grace. We are kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. We are protected and kept by, what, by God's grace and favor. Now, this does not mean God's just giving Abram a free pass. I think the consequences to his sin were pretty much baked into the cake at this point. It's not God's going to spare him from every consequence, but God is showing favor and grace and kindness to Abraham. God is in the process of sanctifying Abram through this based on his promises to him. We see this grace that fear finds. It's intervening, but it's also a delivering grace. I noted verses 18 to 19. Pharaoh could have lopped off Abram's head and be probably well within his rights as Pharaoh to do so. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He confronts him. He rebukes him. And oh, what shame it is when the people of God are rebuked by the enemies of God. What a tragedy, right? Godly Abram is all in the wrong while godless Pharaoh is in the right. Pharaoh's behaving more honorably than Abram. It is a tragic thing when the world behaves with greater honor than the church. It's a tragic thing when I hear stories of churches covering up abuse and the world being like, you can't do that, right? You can't cover up sin. You can't cover up criminal behavior. Where, where the world has a clearer sense at times of what ought to be done. That's a tragedy when God's name is 
defamed because of the bad behavior of Christians. By the way, I think we need to remember, beloved, as we go through life, as you go to, go to your job, post on face, Facebook or social media, as we go through Walmart, as you interact with a customer service person at, the, at, at Kohl's, you're representing your king. We are representing our king. We are representing the reputation of God in the world. Abram here is not exactly being a great representative, is he, of, of Yahweh. And so God intervenes to rescue his name. So what happens in verse 20? Well, look at the end of verse 19. He says, Now therefore behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. The, in the Hebrew, this is sort of spat out like text. Here, wife, take, go. That's how it comes across in Hebrew. It's just boom, boom, boom. I'm not happy here. Get out of here before I change my mind. So he gets expelled out of Egypt. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So it's almost like Pharaoh saying, guys, don't mess with this guy. His, his God is a really powerful God. We don't want to be on his bad side. Protect him. Give him safe passage out of the land. And here's the amazing thing. He lets him take all the stuff that he gave him. So off he goes with his, his, his BMWs and his Ferraris, right, out of the land with all the stuff of the Egyptian stuff that he didn't deserve. This reminds me of another event in Old Testament history. You've got the people of God in Egypt, kept captive there, sort of against their will. I don't think that uh, Sarai was too excited about being Pharaoh's captive. God unleashing plagues against the Egyptians, and then God's people being expelled with all of the stuff that belonged to the Egyptians. Sound familiar? Sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? We've got some language here that is identical language. Terms, remember Moses is writing this, and Moses also writes the book of Exodus. That term plague, that term expelled, where he sends them out of Egypt. This idea of wealth being given to the people of God. God carrying out his covenant to protect his people. All of this happens again in the Exodus. This is like the Exodus in microcosm. Uh, This is like a a foreshadowing of what God's going to do in the Exodus. This points us ahead, not just from intervening grace and and protecting grace, but to the redeeming grace that God would unleash in the Exodus. God would deliver Israel from Egypt with a powerful hand for his own glory, with the blood on the doorposts, with Israel's, uh, Israel's judgment being laid onto a lamb. And that, of course, is another signpost pointing us to the cross, So this is an event that's pointing us, hey, look ahead to the Exodus, five miles. And then the Exodus is like a signpost saying, look to the cross a hundred miles ahead. This is pointing us to God's redeeming grace by which he delivers his people from sin's oppression. And it's all grace. By grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. God delivers Abram here. Abram has nothing to do with it. God delivers Israel from Egypt. Israel had nothing to do with it. God delivers you and me from sin, and we have nothing to do with it except the sin that made the whole mess to begin with. That's grace. We would be remiss to to, to look at the story and not see how it points us to the cross. Anytime we read the Old Testament, there's a couple of things we should be doing here. We should be looking for the character of God. We should be looking for the lessons. These things were written for for our learning as examples. Okay, We don't want to miss that. And we should also see how the Old Testament points us to Jesus, points us to the Exodus, and through the Exodus, we see sort of through a dark glass the shadow of a cross. It's kind of like when you have those sort of opaque windows, and you can tell someone's standing outside the window. You're looking through the window here, and you can see the shadow of a cross, God delivering his people. One level, this is a really tragic story, isn't it? Abram acting in fear, lying about his wife. She almost gets taken into the the, the king's harem. Abram could have very well lost his life, and the story could have ended right here. But God, in his grace, intervened in spite of his fear. This is what I think the big takeaway is for me. Look at how faithful God is to his people. You see, it's not because we are the ones who are just doing great and awesome things that God's like, I'm going to stick with you. It's because God has covenanted himself to us in Christ. Think about this. God chose to save you and me from eternity past. And it's not that God's like, well, I'm just going to blindly save these people because I think they might be good picks. No, he saved us, not not because he knew that we would do good things, but he he saved us knowing full well how rotten we would be. That when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see how this just magnifies the faithfulness of God? Faithful is he who has called you who will also do it. That the God who has brought us into the kingdom will see to it that we make it all the way to glory. The God who has seen to it that we took the first step of faith will perfect us until the day of Christ. And beloved, yes, we might stumble and we might falter along the way. 
And God's going to come along like a, like a loving parent and say, I'm going to pick you back up, get back on the bike. Now, here's what he's not going to do. He's not going to abandon you and be like, well, I'm going to let you just sort of wallow in sin. One of the marks that you are a genuine believer in Jesus is that he does get you out of Egypt. Right? So people, oh, I'm saved, and I've not been in church for 50 years, and I'm just living in sort of open rebellion against God. You're probably not saved. But as a Christian, just because you have some days where you stumble and falter, just because you have some days where your faith is not what it ought to be, does not mean that there is no faith. Abram was a man of real faith, yet there's faltering, there's failing, yet God is faithful through it all. God made a promise to Abram that through you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Do you know that was not fulfilled by Abraham? Do you know that Abram did not meet the qualifications to do that? It was only through Abram's offspring, Jesus Christ, that that is fulfilled. When we look at Abram's falterings and his failings, yeah, we can be critical and yeah, that's bad. We see a mirror here of, of our own failings and our own falterings, but we also, as I mentioned last week, we see a window through which to see the majesty and the perfection of Jesus. In this story, Pharaoh's not the hero. Sarai's not the hero. Abram's definitely not the hero. God is the hero. And God is the hero of every story. I started out asking you about people you have seen who have fallen, who have let you down. I think we make a mistake when we look to men too much. When we put our hope too much in what a spiritual leader or an author or a preacher or a pastor or a mentor can do for us. You will be disappointed if you put all of your eggs in that basket, if you put all of your confidence in that, when you put all of your focus on those individuals. But let me tell you this, you will never, ever, ever be disappointed if you look to Christ as your hero. When you look to Jesus as your ultimate example. You see, Abram deceived, but Jesus never did. Abram's faith wavered. Jesus's never did. Abram's obedience was imperfect, but Jesus's obedience was perfect. And that's good news because you and I are sinners who need someone with perfect obedience. You and I are sinners who need someone who always speaks the truth because we don't. We need someone to be literally our substitute, literally to be our representative in life and in death, and it is Jesus. So yes, you will be let down even by Abraham this great father of faith in whose footsteps we walk. He's still an example for us, right? We can still look to him. It's not just don't ever read about Abraham, only talk about Jesus. But through Abraham, see Jesus. Everything that's good in Abraham is ultimately pointing to us to what is perfect in Jesus. And what is bad in Abraham is ultimately contrasting to the perfection and the majesty of our Savior. So yeah, you'll be let down, but you'll never be let down by Jesus. His love will never let us down or let us go. So as we conclude here, I want to close in a word of prayer, and I want to invite you as we pray, to put your eyes on Jesus. So would you bow with me? We'll give you a moment to respond. Respond to the, the, the message and respond to the truth, what God has said to us in his word. What are those things that you are fearing more than you are fearing God this morning? Is there some idolatry in your heart that you need to confess? In what ways have you lost sight of the bigness of God? Where is it that you have been looking to man rather than God to do what only God can do? Father, forgive me, forgive us for so often.